God, we do give you thanks. What a faithful and gracious God you are. The sunrise each and every morning is a testimony to your faithfulness. And Lord, we understand that even as the sun rises and we wake, that you have not been sleeping. But even in the wee morning hours, you have been awake watching over us, and we praise you for that. We give you thanks for that. What a good, good Father you are. And it's your name that we worship here this morning. It's your name that we proclaim. It's your faithfulness that we revel in. We worship you. We love you. Lord, would you teach us about yourself this morning as we look at your word? Amen. Um, I'm going to start by reading our text from Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. I was told this morning, well, I was told last week that we were out of Bibles, and I didn't solve that, so we're still out of Bibles. Um, If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. You'll just have to come back next week to get it from us, though. While you're turning to Luke chapter 11, I I just want to explain something. Maybe you have wondered, like, why do we do this every Sunday? Why do we do this each and every week? Why read the Bible and have somebody talk about it? And the reason is because this is one of the most important things of what it means to be a Christian. If you are a believer, then your life is built on this book. And so together we read it, we study it, not just here on Sunday mornings, but often in people's homes, and hopefully you're doing it yourself throughout the week. Because as a Christian, you only grow in your maturity in proportion to your commitment to this book, to live by it, to worship God through it, to see the Holy Spirit move in your life because of it. And it's not that we worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who is the author of the Bible, who's revealed himself to us in these pages. And it's not just that this book has some really good things in it. Lots of people believe that. That's not what we believe. We believe that this is the revelation of God about himself. And without it, we are lost. We know nothing about God. And so we study it to know it so that we can ultimately know him so that we can draw near to him. That is why we do this week in and week out, and hopefully that's why you do that on a daily basis as well. Christians study the Bible because it is one of the most important things that we can do because it leads us to Jesus, and that's what this is all about ultimately. All right, with that said, let me read Luke 11. I'm going to read 1 through 13. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks or who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? One of the most difficult things that I have to do on a daily basis is be a father. I didn't get any training for this job, and it is challenging. If you are a father, you know that. If you're a child, you don't, but you might someday. I love my children, right? But sometimes I just have no idea how to be a good father, right? How sternly do I discipline them? How do I get them to eat nutritious food and not just candy? How do I bless them with good things without spoiling them and making them ungrateful? How do I communicate to them the importance of knowing Jesus? How do I nurture their unique talents and abilities? How do I make sure that each of them individually feel loved and nurtured in my house, treasured by me as their father? And how do I apologize against them when I sin, or apologize to them when I sin against them? And while I'm wrestling with all these questions, I also realize I am under constant scrutiny from my children all the time. They are watching me. Okay, I tell you this story, and I'm not proud of it, but I'll tell it to you because it happened. At one point, I took my kids to Copper Sky to go swimming, the the rec center, and uh, we're in the pool, and this lifeguard comes over, and he reprimands me. He says, you have to get out of the pool, and I'm like, why? He says, well, your children are not wearing the approved flotation devices, and I was furious. I look around the pool. There's 14 lifeguards standing around the pool. All of my kids are wearing floaties, and I am literally holding on to every single one of them. And we have to get out of the pool because they're not wearing the approved flotation devices, okay? I didn't curse, but I did let loose a rant about how stupid the government can be in its desperate efforts to regulate people to save them from themselves, okay? Look, I was angry again. I'm not proud of it. I said foolish things, and I did it in the presence of my children, A few days later, I go to pick up my son Aiden from school, and he gets in the car, and I say to him, hey, Aiden, how was school? He goes, oh, it was good. I say, what'd you do today? He goes, well, me and my friends, we were on the playground. We played government. (laughs) I said, said, Aiden, I've never heard of this game. What is government? And he says, it's a game where someone makes up a stupid rule that you have to follow, and everybody (laughs) else tries not to follow it. And I realized, oh my goodness, (laughs) like my children are watching what I say. And I had to repent of careless words, truly. And being a father, it's really hard, right? Pretty much all that I know for sure is that I'm not a very good one despite all of my efforts. But the good news is that I do know a good father, my heavenly father right, who hears my prayers and loves to give and loves to act graciously and judges perfectly, who meets all of my needs and blesses me richly and abundantly through the kind and generous gift of his Holy Spirit that he gives to me. And our passage from Luke 11, it is rich with the glories of God. There are so many ways that I could tackle this, but the thing that I want us to look at closely this morning is what this passage reveals about God as he relates to us as a good father. Okay, for starters, let's just consider for a moment how how Jesus opens this prayer. He says, Our Father, 
We read the Bible through the lens of the New Testament, which I think is how we should do it. I think we can only truly understand the Old Testament when we look at the Old Testament through what God has revealed in the New Testament. But the result is that this language becomes familiar to us. God as Father actually doesn't sound strange to you and me. And yet to the audience that Jesus was talking to, for Jesus to have talked about God as Father, it would have sounded inappropriately intimate. I looked up the word Father in the Old Testament. I did a word search. There are 784 uses of the word Father in English in the singular form in the Old Testament. 784 times in the Old Testament where somebody is referred to as Father. And I went and I combed through every single one of those 784 instances where that word is used. And do you know how many times it was used to refer to God? Amazingly, only five of those instances in the Old Testament were an obvious reference to God. And the point is, as God has revealed himself progressively to the Jews throughout redemptive history, his role as father was in there, but it was hushed. It was sort of a covered role. It wasn't a primary part of the identity that God was revealing to his people. And most Jews then would have felt that Jesus was seriously violating the holiness, the otherness of God by referring to him with this intimate title, Father. And that's a precisely the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus had come to reveal the compassionate affection that God, his heavenly Father, had for mankind. If we look closely at the first line of this prayer that Jesus teaches to his disciples, look what it says. It says, Father, holy is your name. Hallowed be thy name. The point is that the same holy God that throughout Jewish Jewish history had hidden himself behind the veil in the temple, that's our Father in heaven. The same holy God whom the Jews revered so much that they refused to even say his name out loud also goes by the affectionate and gentle term, Father. To put it another way, Jesus is giving permission for his disciples to call the almighty, holy, eternal God, Father. And he connects the two, the holy God of Israel with Father in this prayer. It's as if in this moment, the vast stretches of the cosmos spanning the limitless distances of heaven are brought home to the human heart in intimacy. God, who is holy and perfect, strong and mighty, eternal and glorious, is pleased that we should call him Dad. And that's an amazing truth just slipped into the opening statement of this prayer. And the rest of the prayer only further expounds on this idea. Our God is our intimate and affectionate heavenly Father who loves to give. Look at this. We ask and he gives. We see that in the prayer. We pray for his kingdom to come. And God is pleased to usher in a world where his good and perfect will is always done. He gives us the glories of his kingdom. We ask for our daily needs to be met, and our Father in heaven is pleased to send us manna from heaven, daily provision, so that each and every need that we have for each and every day comes to us in his perfect timing. We need forgiveness for our childish disobedience, and our Father is kind and merciful. We go to him, and he forgives us for our sins as we seek to be reconciled to him. 
We ask for help for giving those who've hurt us, and we can be sure that God, who is our Father in heaven, will aid us in our time of need to give us the grace that we need, empowering us to forgive those who've wounded us and sinned against us, even as we remember his forgiveness in our own lives. And in need of assistance to be victorious in our struggle against sin, our struggle for holiness and obedience, we ask that God would keep us from falling into temptation. And we can be sure that our Father in heaven, who is our good God, will surely make us more than conquerors in our struggle against sin. That's what we see in this prayer. We ask and God loves to give. And every aspect of this prayer points to what a good Father we have in God in heaven, who loves us and cares for us. But Jesus is not content to just leave it at that. He gives the prayer, and then he offers some commentary about our God, our good Father, to tell us what the character of God is like. What is our Heavenly Father like? Jesus tells us with two comparisons. First, we've got the story of the man who asks his neighbor, his friend, for some loaves of bread, right? A man has a friend who comes to town, but since his arrival was unexpected... The host has no food to offer his friend, which would have just been shameful. So he goes to another friend's house down the street, and he asks him to share some of the bread that the man has in his house, but it's late at night. And, it, and, and the man is upset that somebody would be knocking on his door so late at night. But because of the persistent banging on his door, he finally is persuaded to get up and answer the call. This is a strange illustration on prayer, if I ever heard one. I mean, I started looking at this like three weeks ago, and for like two weeks, I just honestly had no idea what it meant. And after spending a few weeks reading this and reflecting on it, I think there's two levels of meaning here, okay? On one level, I think that Jesus is encouraging us to be persistent in our prayers, of course. If you've been asking God to meet a need that you have for a long time, don't stop simply because you've been asking for a long time. Don't stop because it's been weeks or months or even years and it hasn't been answered. Don't stop. Keep pounding on the door and keep asking God. He may yet still come to your aid and open the door and give you what you're asking for. But there's another level here, I think, a deeper level, and it's this level that tells us that we're free to keep pounding on the door. In this story, the friend finally opens the door. He gives the man the bread just because he wants him to shut up and go away, right? And I kept thinking, God, is that what you want? Like, you'll open the door and give us what we want just so that we shut up and go away? No. Jesus is not saying that God is like this. Jesus is saying that God is better than this. If this is how people behave, then how much more can we expect from God, who is our good and loving Father? The friend gives the bread over because he longs for the man to leave and go away. God gives us the answers to our prayers because he longs that we would stay and continue to pray. He's the God who gives because he delights in the good of his children. He's our loving father who never grows weary of our affection and our pursuit of him. I confess, some, I've got four little kids ages six and younger. And I confess that sometimes when I'm at home, I just want to sit on the couch. I get weary of their affection and the way that they smother me in it, okay? I'm, I'm ashamed to say. There are times when I just want to sit on the couch. I don't want a child in my lap. I don't want a head snuggling my arm. I don't want somebody climbing all over me. I just want to be left alone, right? But this is not so with God, our Father. We can sit in his lap all day long. We can snuggle his arm till kingdom come. 
We can climb all over him and revel in his affection for us and he will never grow weary or send us away from him. And trust me, the problem is not that we pound on the door too often and too long. The problem is that we don't pound on the door enough. We don't come too much. We come too little. And the problem in Scripture has never been that God's people come too frequently so as to make him tired of their worship or their affection or their love for him. Never has God been weary of the presence of his people, ever. The implication all throughout Scripture is that the children of God come to God far too infrequently. They seek him and they entreat him far too little. They bother him not nearly enough. And he loves it when we pester him with our prayers. He loves it when we pursue him through prayer. And it's not possible for us to bother God our Father with our prayers to the point that he actually wants us to shut up and go away. He loves to be the object of our attention and our affection because through Christ, through Christ, we are the object of his affection. This idea, I think, is only further expounded in verses 11 through 13, where we see this second comparison about God. It says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is using a classical rabbinical argument here. It's pretty, to see, pretty easy to see and understand, but let me give you the technical term here. The technical name for this rabbinical argument is called val cahomer, or maybe you've heard it called a fortori in the Latin. All it means is lesser to greater, lesser to greater. Jesus is appealing to natural human relationships between a father and his son to tell us something even greater about who God is. Only the worst of mankind would not give to his own flesh and blood the daily sustenance that a child requires, right? I mean, we all cringe when we hear stories like this in the news. When a child asks his father for breakfast, even just a decent dad is going to give cereal, not scorpions, right? And if a, of course, if a good dad is willing to give cereal, not scorpions, imagine what God will do. Just this morning, my son Soren, I'm, I'm sitting in my office, I'm studying, and he comes in and he says, Dad, can I have some water? And so I go and I get him a cup, and I give him the cup. He's tall enough, he can reach the, the water purifier in the fridge, and I go back in my office. A minute later, he comes in and he's just weeping. And he goes, Daddy, I want some water. And his cup is empty, and I, I'm, I'm wondering what's going on. Well, the night before, I had locked the, the fridge water dispenser because they kept getting ice and chewing it everywhere, Right? And my heart was broken because I didn't want to give him an empty cup. I wanted him to have what he asked me for. And if humans who love imperfectly are capable of loving their own children in this kind of capacity, which is a lesser love, I can only imagine the kind of love that our Heavenly Father will employ towards us who are his children who he loves so deeply. In the lesser human love, a father or a mother will treat their child well. And so we can be confident that in the greater divine love that God has for us, God is going to treat us extravagantly well. And again, we see the character of our God. He's good. He's a generous father. He's a righteous God. He's a gracious and caring provider. He loves us far more than our earthly father could ever love us. 
And I think it's relevant here that we understand, just sort of on a side note, the ancient concept of deity real quick, okay? Because I think it's going to help us understand how extreme this idea is in the ancient world. Admittedly, the Jews understood God to be slightly different here, but the gods of the ancient world, they were extremely temperamental. They were more like humans than anything. They were gods made in the image of man, okay? Which means that you never knew what you were going to get. Just like people might wake up one day, we say, on the wrong side of the bed, and everyone around them has to suffer as a result. So the gods of the ancient world, too, might wake up on the wrong side of the bed and smite you simply because they were having a bad day. And if you've ever read Homer's Odyssey, I mean, that theme is woven all throughout that work of literature. And it sounds ridiculous, but actually many people today still think this way. If you listen closely, you hear these kinds of things. They don't talk about gods anymore because we think we're so intellectual and enlightened and we've done away with that archaic idea. So we frame it in scientific terms, right? People talk about fate or chance or probability. The universe had it out for me today. There's a line from a popular movie or book series, maybe you've heard, it says, may the odds be ever in your favor, right? Does that sound familiar? And all that junk is, is simply an appeal to a temperamental universe. It's an archaic prayer to the cosmos that the gods don't smite me on any given day because I've done poorly in their eyes. And the point is this, when Jesus reveals this idea about our heavenly father, He's telling us that our God is nothing like that. He's not a temperamental and angry deity who likes to play mean tricks on people. He's a good father. He's constant in his character. He never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed grumpy and ready to take it out on you. If even earthly fathers know how to treat their children well, then of course God the Father, the model after which all good fatherhood is typified, of course, God is going to do well by us who love him. We can trust that in his role as father, he's going to treat us fairly. He will comfort us in our pain. He will lift us up when we fall. He will forgive us when we repent. He will deal kindly with us because his heart towards us is tender to his children. And we always know what we're going to get with God is going to be constant because his character as our heavenly father is revealed in scripture. The revelation of God's word shows us that he is good and kind and gracious. His steadfast love never fails, like the song says. A verse that kept coming to mind as I was preparing this message, one that I love from the Psalms, it does not use the word father, but it uses descriptive words, fatherly imagery. It says this, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall." He shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Often when I walk with my children, I'll grab their hand, I'll hold their hand, or they'll grab my hand to hold my hand. It helps them know where they're going. It reassures them as we walk. It lets them tangibly feel my love and affection for them. And often as we walk along, I lead them. My steps are bigger than theirs. They're little and they're clumsy and they fall. They topple. But because my strong hand is holding them and supporting them, they fall, but they never hit the ground because I always catch them. And this is like our God who delights as our heavenly father to ensure that we each and every one of us reach our final destination secure 
in his strong supporting grasp. Okay, finally, verse 13 of Luke 11. It tells us specifically how God our Father provides and cares for us as we walk along with him. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is one of the greatest gifts that God can give to believers. The very Spirit of God our Father at work and alive in us. It's the Spirit that regenerates us, the Spirit that cleanses us. It's the Spirit that convicts us of sin, the Spirit of encouragement, the Spirit of power, the Spirit who is the down payment of the promise that we have received in the resurrection of Jesus. Wow, what a gift the Holy Spirit is to those who believe. The gift of His presence, the Holy Spirit in our lives. It might be just a little bit like the gift of my last name, which I've bestowed upon my children. It's an identifying mark. They're going to scribble it on every paper that they turn in from now until they graduate college, probably. It identifies them that they belong to me. They are a part of my family. It's an identifying mark that they're going to use to introduce themselves to the world as they grow and they mature. Aid in root. Karis Root, Soren Root, Briley Root. It indicates that they belong to me, not as a possession, but as a treasure that I have, a treasure that I cherish. They're mine. All that I have is theirs. I take full responsibility for them. I will provide for every single one of their needs. I prize the responsibility that I have to care for them, and I love to share with them the good things that this life has. And I'm so pleased that their name is my name. I'm so filled with joy that they share in my family and that I get to be their father. Now, if being evil, I feel this kind of joy in the gift of my last name belonging to my children, try to imagine how God must feel about the gift of the Holy Spirit impressed on your heart you who he is proud to call his child. His own being woven into yours through the Spirit of God. And if I love to give trivial things to my kids, imagine how much God delights in sharing the eternal glories of the Holy Spirit with us. I can only echo the words of 1 John. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God is greatly pleased to be our Father and greatly pleased that we are His precious children. I have to conclude with one more minute, okay? The reason why I chose to spend this whole morning sort of floundering, really, to try and explain the wonders of what it means that God would be called our Father is because often Christians totally fail to understand the implications of this idea the truth of God's love for us. In my hundreds of hours counseling people as a pastor for the last 13 years, in the many hours that I have spent just plumbing the depths of my own enigmatic heart, I've come to realize that many of us simply have no understanding of this concept that God is our good father. He's a good dad, truly. He has loved us and cared for us when everyone else has abandoned us. 
He has carried us through the most difficult times. He has whispered his love and affection to us through the words of Scripture. And he has already secured for us an eternal inheritance in glory. And we see this most powerfully displayed when we take into consideration, look at this, who says this? Who teaches this teaching? It's obvious, right? Who's telling us about the Father in this passage? It's Jesus himself. You're like, Grady, what a dumb question to conclude on. Take a look at this. Not so many pages from now in Luke, in only chapter 22, Jesus is going to pray that God, his good Father, would spare him from the suffering of the cross. In only a matter of months from when Jesus is teaching his disciples this, Jesus knows that he's actually going to be rejected by his good Father. And what's truly amazing here is that Jesus saw his heavenly Father as a good dad, even though he already knew that in the future, the Father was going to send him to the cross. Do you understand that? So we tend to think that when life gets hard, God must not be good, or he wouldn't put me through this. And yet Jesus was looking forward to the cross, knowing full well that that's where he was headed, and he knew the suffering ahead of him, and even with his eyes fixed firmly on the cross and its shadow casting a long shadow over his life, he was teaching the disciples to understand what a good heavenly father God is. Jesus saw God as a good father in spite of the cross and the suffering before him, but we go deeper still. Look at this. The truth, I think, is not only that Jesus saw God as a good father because of the cross, or I'm sorry, the, the truth is that God, Jesus was saying God is a good father not only in spite of the cross, but God is a good father because of the cross. Forgive me. He's a good dad because he put Jesus on the cross out of love for us. Do you understand that the only way that Jesus could teach his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, God, and they would get to be a part of that kingdom, was if the father was good enough to sacrifice his own son to redeem them out of sin. If God didn't do that, then his kingdom would have come, but we would have never been a part of it because our sins had cast us out. The only way that we could rejoice as the children of our good heavenly Father is because God loved us so deeply that he gave his only son to redeem us. And it is truly amazing to me that in spite of the cross, Jesus preaches that God is a good father, but also because of the cross, Jesus declares that God is a good father. And I want you to understand, as you go through life, you're going to suffer. As my children grow towards maturity, they're going to have heartache. They're going to have hospital visits. They're going to feel loneliness, disappointment, and despair. And it's just a matter of fact that movement towards maturity comes with difficulty. But what I want you to understand as you grow in your Christian maturity, through all the suffering and hardship and difficulty, is that God is a good father. And if you doubt that, truly, I encourage you, look to the cross where you see Jesus who held out the belief that God is a good father even as he bled and died to prove it for you. Because as he hung on the cross, Jesus knew without a shadow of a doubt that even though the father had put him on the cross, his father was still a good daddy. 
Let me pray for us. Lord, what more can we say but just to proclaim that you indeed are a good father? And Lord, I do think that there are some in this room this morning that for whatever reason, because of their circumstances, they don't believe that today. It doesn't feel that way. It doesn't seem true. The promise of your word in Scripture seems far from them because of the heartache that they've experienced. And Lord, I pray that you would work to soften their hearts and penetrate that darkness. That they, like your son Jesus, would know the truth. That in spite of the suffering ahead of him, he knew that you were indeed a good father. Lord, would you encourage us with that truth? Would you lift up our hearts? Would you bless us in allowing us to know and understand in a way that is unknowable by human means? Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you teach us what a good daddy you are? And we worship you for this truth. We thank you even for communion which lies ahead of us. This moment when we celebrate what it was that Jesus did on the cross to save us from our sins. We worship you in these moments because you are a good father. Amen. We're going to take communion right now. The way that we're going to do that this morning is by intinction, which means that if you're a believer, you're invited to partake. If, if you have trusted that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead, if you have placed your faith in him as the Son of God, that you, then you're invited to make your way to one of the tables that we have on the sides of the room. And I invite you to do that just as our worship team leads us and plays these next couple of songs. What I would ask you to do before you go to the table, though, is this. Maybe you want to stand, maybe you want to sit, maybe you even want to find a space where you can kneel, that's fine. I want you to just sing along some of this song for a moment. And just revel in the fact that God is a good father. Take a moment to pray and pour out your heart to him in worship and expression, telling him how much you love him for being a good father. And just give God praise and thanks that he would give up his only son, that his son would shed his blood so that you could become a child of God. Worship him for the riches that you have in being part of his family because he loved you enough to send Jesus for your sake to redeem you.